Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. My name is Andrew Hill. I have a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA. And cognoro is sort of this intersection of mind and brain. And a cognitive neuroscientist generally will try to figure out the, the base science, the core science. How does the brain produce things about experience, attention, sleep, stress, learning? I'm kind of an unusual cognitive neuroscientist because I took my training and flipped it back into the clinical world or the practical world. Um, before my PhD, I, studied, I, I worked a lot in human services in uh, crisis work with acute psychiatric populations. Um, not too far from you, I worked at an autism center for a few years in Providence. Mm. Um, I'd done all kinds of work across addiction, aging, all, you know, pretty much every type of human suffering. And I worked for a long time at the really serious edge cases of human suffering, acute psychiatric, multiple diagnoses. Um, I ran a group home for adults that had no language, were multiply disabled, uh, retarded, physically disabled, et cetera and just saw people at the edge of their you know, peopleness, so to speak, when their cognition declined, mm -hmm. uh, both acutely, developmentally, from drugs and alcohol. And I had been working in human services for about 20 years when I got to work in this autism center in Providence and suddenly was seeing things I didn't think were possible, seeing ADHD and autism and seizures and migraines and OCD and PTSD get alleviated, like in a few weeks or a couple of months. And this was sort of... Um, counter to what I experienced working historically in the health and human service field. Mm. And so this provoked me to go back and get a PhD studying this stuff, this brain mind stuff. But then instead of going to the academic route, um, I decided to uh, become an entrepreneur. And I framed the work that I do kind of like personal training. You know, I'm a PhD cognitive neuroscientist, but my job is to be your educator, your coach, your scientist, and to help you become your own neuroscientist so you can take control of this stuff up here. I think a lot of times in interpersonal psychiatric work, we're often trying to help the therapist or clinician develop the access and agency that the, the, or the perspective at least of your client. It's part of the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. That's hard. It's always been an Achilles heel of neurofeedbackers to sort of have to understand what's happening in the head of the client they're working with, especially between office visits. And so instead of trying to close that loop as a really, really good therapist, I decided to close the loop by becoming um, a sort of neuroscientist that transfers the appropriate neuroscience to you. So if you have ADHD or seizures or migraines or PTSD, I can show it to you in your brain probably. And then once you see that it's your brain, the stigma can go away. And for me, this was such a powerful thing that I doubled down on it. You know, if I can show someone with PTSD that the back midline of their brain is stuck in a threat assessment mode, it stops being something mysterious and out of their control. And yeah, PTSD is really uncomfortable and gets in the way all over the place. But so does a low back that's spasmed up, right? Those low back muscles are there to protect you and they spasm up when your spine is challenged. Mm -hmm. The same thing that happens to the posterior cingulate when it the world isn't safe or predictable, it clenches up in beta waves and you see this little hot beta in the back midline. And so if you can show someone their brain and go, hey, it looks like your posterior cingulate's kind of hot. Are you a little bit like ruminating, threat assessing? You're kind of like stuck in a high, oh, you are. Okay, do you care about it? Oh, you do, all right. You wanna work, you wanna relax that resource? Pretty easy. And the lovely thing that I found is if you take these sort of like 
extra active things that are potentially both good and bad, like focus, like threat assessment, like attention switching gears, like novelty seeking, you know, ADHD stuff. If you train people's brains, you give them control over the stuff they like. Like the OCD person can put down the OCD when they feel like it or pick it up whenever they want to be a CEO and hyper-focus and mm. hold all the things in their mind at once, but they don't have to anymore. Mm. So I saw this stuff start to first impact people with severe brain issues, major autism, developmental issues, seizures. And then I moved um, out into more you know, broad brains. And these days, um, peak brain, about a third of our clients are the sort of high level performers, you know, Ben Greenfield, um, athletes, executives, people that are trying to squeeze every little bit of performance out and we're just one more tool they're using. And then about a third of that old classic population of people with autism, seizures, migraines, severe brain injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's all the rest of us who have some sleep, some stress, some attention. Maybe we drink too much. Maybe we smoke too much weed. You know, maybe we're stressed out. Maybe we have some old trauma. Maybe we, you know, have some apnea. And those things all take the brain's performance out like really quickly. So half the people I look at, I'm like, oh, hey, look, some slowed processing and you aren't getting good deep sleep. And I could almost do that you know, for everyone without looking at their brain because most Westerners don't have good regulation of those things. Mm -hmm. But this becomes a tool set to um, essentially steer the, the, the direction of your brain. Your cognition uh, does change. Your stress, your sleep, your mood, your attention, these things are regulatory resources. Mm. And most of them are there to be relatively stable and to keep flexing as you stretch them and come back and support you. But some of those resources, especially when we get into mental health issues, become less um, flexible, less regulated. You know, like the posterior cingulate, everyone has one probably, or most people have one, and you use it. I bet you used it today when you were driving in, you know, wherever you were coming into, uh, well, maybe you aren't driving anywhere right now, but in theory, this is a very familiar experience. You're driving, you, you look at the floor for a second or your phone, not that you would do this, but if you did, then you're like, uh, watch the road. And you kind of have this orienting experience where someone mm -hmm. says, hey, Nick, heads up. And you like look up and catch the Frisbee, you know, get smacked in the head. That's your posterior cingulate. It's orienting you to the safe behavior you have to engage in right now and what's changing. And we all need one. If you didn't have one, you wouldn't be very effective at keeping yourself safe or healthy. But when it ramps up and gets stuck in a high gear, then it becomes a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But we're so blind to these things in our, in our head that I think people suffer from individual circuits, you know, visual system isn't shutting down with your eyes closed, hypervigilance, posterior cingulate, rumination, anterior cingulate, perseveration, like a OCD slash CEO brain that gets hyper-focused, trust songs mm -hmm. playing in your head, um, eyes open, slow brain waves, inattention, executive functions, sluggish processing becomes things like speed of processing. So you look a young for this, Nick, but probably in your 40s and 50s, um, if your sleep isn't ideal, you'll tank your speed of processing you'll suddenly think you're having memory issues because you can't find words. It's mm. not a memory thing, actually. It's a speed of processing. But often when your sleep gets uh, suboptimal, the first thing that goes is your slow wave sleep slows down your speed of processing. So again, this, I'm jumping around a little bit, but all of this illustrates the idea that you can look at your brain, just like you might want to look at your you know, lipid panel or your C-reactive protein or your you know, cholesterol levels, or as you hit 40, 50, 60 years old, your PSA for guys like us to make mm -hmm. sure it stays nice and low. We don't develop any, you know, hyperplasias or anything. These are all useful bits of information. And I think we have an opportunity to, uh, you know, not just an opportunity, a responsibility to, sort of, to some extent to take care of it. The same way you would probably not drink all the sugar and smoke all the weed and drink all the alcohol and, you know, give yourself a heart attack. You have the same responsibility for your cognitive function, your emotional function, your learning, your resilience. 
these are resources. You have them built in. They're not as obvious as like your belly fat, but they're as risky, maybe more so. Now, the good news is you can get control of your executive function or your trauma or your sleep issue generally a whole lot faster than you can get abs. So it's a, it's a much more changeable system above your, you know, in, in your brain. The whole system is designed to change. So it's, once you can apply the right pressure, you generally can get um, in the sort of change you're looking for in these gross resources. Yeah, I think uh, it's really valuable what you spoke about, particularly in you know, being able to measure or being able to see you know, different areas um, in our brain and, and understand uh, where there may be changes uh, in functioning and how that may relate to different symptoms that people are recognizing um, and how that can impact stigma. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, I, th I think a lot of people growing up, you hear about mental illnesses, you hear about things like, uh, depression, PTSD or OCD, and you, you, you think that, you know, somebody is, uh, either overreacting or just sort of, that's some sort of personal flaw. Um, but that, uh, by, by having sort of greater understanding of the biological basis behind what we're experiencing, we can, you know, attack it just like any other, you know, physical ailment of the body. Yeah, I mean, you, would, you wouldn't be guilty or you wouldn't be angry at your shoulder for hurting. And then you went to the doctor and got an x-ray. Oh, well, separated shoulder. You probably wouldn't have been cursing it for the previous three weeks. Why, why is my damn shoulder hurting? Well, you might be angry at or frustrated, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't feel like guilty. Oh, it's my fault. My shoulder hurts. Oh my gosh, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't talk about this. I shouldn't, you know. No, it's your shoulder. Go look at it. Oh, here's the thing. Let's address it. Let's some range of motion, some, you know, cold, whatever. You can do the same thing for a lot of the things that we think of as cognitive or mental health things. I mean, a lot. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every category of anxiety is not a disease process. It's a natural resource that's gotten stuck. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of executive function, unless it's like big injuries or, you know, uh, sort of progressive illness, most things for executive function, um, aging-based things, ADHD, uh, being stressed and having your attention changed. Those are regulatory feature, features that switch, just like mm -hmm. your strength, your, you know, your alertness, and you can train them just like you can train your strength. So I, I'm here to tell you that you don't have to suffer with your PTSD, your OCD, your ADHD. These things are largely tractable for most people. I mean, mm -hmm. I do with ADHD, I do uh, generally about 40 or 50 sessions of neurofeedback, which takes about three to four months. And when people come in with ADHD uh, on assessments, they come up at like two to three standard deviations off the bell curve, like the mm -hmm. wrong side of the, of, the, of the mean. And I do about 40 sessions of training and they end up changing by four standard deviations on average. And now they're above the mean by the same amount they were when they started, i.e. you eliminate the problem and it's a permanent change. Right. Now, not everything's permanent in neurofeedback because the things that are permanent sort of are the things you're doing every day. Mm -hmm. Once you tune them, they stay tuned. But if I was working on schizophrenia or something and you stopped coming in, it would probably just come back because you're, you're working to slow it down more than really offset the core disease process there. Hmm. Um, but again, you, you know, you wouldn't be uh, dismayed or you wouldn't just give up about your like bizarre knee pain that's making you limp. You'd go get it checked out. You know, you go get it addressed and it would be really annoying and it would probably have some arthroscopic surgery and some healing time and some recovery. But six months from now, you're back on the field running or riding the bike or whatever. I mean, we have that capacity with our brains. You don't have to get old in terms of mental stuff. There's no decline that's necessary for the brain. Mm -hmm. Yes, you lose some speed of processing. Yes, you lose some brain tissue on average. But it's not very much. It's like a half a percent per year or something after age 62. And that's if you don't do things like meditate, 
you know, have other healthy habits that keep the brain tissue fat and happy and plastic, like um, challenging yourself, like fasting, like uh, having good muscle mass and doing resistance training, you know, getting good deep sleep stitched together. These things all help the brain stay really quite fat and happy. You, you definitely want a fat brain. Uh, a thin brain is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. It, it thins out throughout your life. Uh, right. Once you hit like 50 and above, it starts to thin out a little bit, which is not ideal. Um, I think generally, um, the average human in the west, uh, the, the lateral side, the temporal, the, uh, temporal frontal lobe called the insula, um, will thin out by about 15 or 20% the time you're in your mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And that's the area of the brain involved with body awareness, feeding, self, you know, a bunch of other stuff. This is why elders aren't as aware of their appetite and their balance and things because the insula is uh, uh, atrophying, essentially. Unless you're a meditator. If you meditate um, essentially 20 minutes, 20 minutes a day, the amount of years even meditating is completely correlated with how much spared tissue you have. Mm-hmm. And you can start at any age. So 20 minutes of meditation will sort of sidestep natural cognitive decline that comes with aging. It can also offset things that are you know, problematic as well, like injuries, like ADHD. Um, so we have a lot of tools. We just don't have a lot of understanding necessarily about where the levers are to pull, to pull that you know, system around. Right. I would love to uh, kind of stay down this path actually around cognitive decline and aging. It's something that's really interesting to me myself. Uh, so you've mentioned meditation as being something that can help to curb this. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been reading a lot about sort of different dietary components, different you know, components of exercise for, uh, for um, kind of staving off this natural decline in atrophy that can happen. But I'd be curious, you know, what you think are some of the major levers that, that can be pulled to help to prevent cognitive decline and aging? So there's a few. Um, and I don't really have a good sense of which is like first, like what, what's the most important. Um, I do think there's a few things that if you keep them maintained, you're likely to sail through the rest of your life without too much trouble. Mm-hmm. And if you don't um, take care of them, you're only likely to survive if you're damn lucky, gene-wise. Um, the biggest one of those things is blood sugar. Almost all diseases of aging are essentially diseases of oxidation. So diabetes, cancer, dementias, Parkinsonian cluster things, including uh, lead body dementias, uh, uh, those are all driven by oxidation of tissue, um, i.e. glycation or rusting of cellular tissue with um, oxidation of sugar. And this is true of Alzheimer's, where the amyloid plaques are, are glycated and they rip to the brain faster. Uh, Lewy bodies become glycated. Uh, Parkinsonian processes can become, you know, rusted tissue that accelerate. And even things like atherosclerosis, you know, not brain aging, but body aging, same process, oxidation of tissue. So you can work through this profoundly well, even if you're already middle-aged, old, diabetic, whatever. You, it looks like we can back this stuff out really effectively. Um, a lot of the information we're having to sort of uh, watch to know if you're trending towards or away from better metabolic health will be around blood sugar. And so we understand blood sugar pretty well. I've been getting into measuring ketones because the ratio of blood glucose to ketones. So having low-ish blood glucose is good. High-ish blood glucose is bad, theoretically, but only chronically. Like you're supposed to be able to have some high blood sugar and some low blood sugar and manage it pretty well. But if it goes up and stays up, that's when illness and death happens. Pretty much anything in the body that regulates, when it stops regulating, that's when you have big problems. The cortisol is supposed to oscillate. If it goes up and stays up, hippocampus dies or atrophies, you end up depressed. That's pretty much the process for depression. Uh, Increased stress, shutting down 
hippocampal plasticity. It's a the stress-driven depression process. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have essentially uh, the ability to control a lot of this stuff if you keep your, again, your, your glucose down and your ketones up. The GKI, the glucose to ketone index, appears to be a lovely indicator of a bunch of things. Now, if you're making some good ketones, you're burning adipose, you're, you're burning your fat, pretty good. It means you aren't burning sugar, you know, but the body can't do both at once. So you have to kind of trick it to go back and forth and back and forth and get better and better at doing both. And that's really a metabolically flexible state. But as you're re-regulating this stuff, you want to really try to get maximum ketones and low glucose. And as that ratio goes up of um, essentially higher ketones to glucose, you will first get into a weight loss, fat loss kind of stage as the ketones start to come up. And then eventually you're into an autophagy stage where you're cleaning out dead cells and tissues. And um, then you're into like an anti-cancer stage, which again, a cancer is a metabolic disorder that is sort of driven by glycation and aging and much other stuff. And there's many cancers, of course, but they're all kind of driven by metabolism being a little out of whack. And you can back this out and pull the teeth of the big drivers of cancer. I mean, we all have some cancerous cells. I mean, it's kind of scary to think about, but you and I are walking around with some proportion of precancerous cells all the time. And the trick here is to get the body to clean them up um, before they manage to edit out the P50 tumor suppressor gene and turn into cancer and, and other things they do to turn into cancer. The body has all kinds of processes to help this, including the autophagy stuff for cleaning up cells that are over proliferating. And it doesn't do this if you're eating sugar three times a day or, or anything three times a day. Mm-hmm. So you need time to clear the body out of this digest and, and burn fuel mode. And then it shifts over into what's called autophagy or clean up the garbage mode. And you really, I think, can get a huge amount out of allowing your body to clean itself up. And there's lots of ways to do this. And how you would do this in terms of fasting or minimizing food would be very much driven by your goals for fasting and, and for making changes here and for where you start. You know, if you're a 350 pound guy who's 40% body fat, you basically don't need to eat. And you can just have salt and water and coffee for like forever, pretty much until you where you wanna be. But if you're somebody who's got really unstable blood sugar, hypoglycemic, who's all up and down, and you've never fasted before, you're a standard Westerner who eats every three hours and gets ravenously hungry two and a half hours in, you got problems with your insulin. And you should probably start to, you know, be aware of that. And the first thing I recommend is you compress the feeding window hmm. and just eat within like an eight hour or 10 hour window. And then I think that for aging, for sugar, there's a lot of this stuff will tap into circadian regulation. And so I like to frame the rules around eating in ways that maximize circadian signaling. Mm-hmm. So I have three big rules for keeping your circadian rhythm tight keeping your sleep good, keeping your autophagy happening when you want it to happen, mm-hmm. and allowing you enough other time frames where you can layer in other things. So this big three rules for circadian regulation are don't eat before bed, you know, fast for three to four hours before bed, water's fine, herbal tea is fine if you need a flavor or a ritual. But I would recommend against eating anything for three to four hours before bed, let your insulin drop all the way. Um, people often are like, oh, that's hard until I tell them the reason. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that. The reason is, if you go to bed with insulin high at all, you don't get any growth hormone released when you're asleep. Now, I think all hormones in the body, human body are pulsatile, meaning they, they're released all at once every so often, and then the body uses it. Because if it was constant levels of hormones, we would, we would get tolerance. We wouldn't actually have signaling. Mm-hmm. So humans will have a giant pulse of growth hormone about two, two and a half hours after they fall asleep until you're about 35. Or 40 years old, and then it's a little tiny pulse, a little tiny one. 
And there's little like pulses throughout the day if you're younger, but after you're 35 or 40, the only thing you're getting is one little tiny pulse of growth hormone in the middle of your night if you have low insulin and you can actually get into deep sleep. If you don't have low insulin, cortisol stays up, insulin stays up, and you don't get into that deep sleep mode. So eating, so the rule of thumb is go to bed hungry, wake up refreshed and feeling full. Go to bed full, wake up hungry and tired. You know, you're really messing with that those uh, regulatory and counter-regulatory hormones for energy throughout the night if you go to bed with food in your stomach. So first rule, fast before bed. Second rule, get up the same time every day. I don't care when you go to bed. Evening light is not that exciting for circadian. Screens are not that exciting for circadian. Blue light, not that exciting. I don't care about it at all. Unless you're not, unless you're doing everything else and then you want to mm -hmm. dial more things in. But the morning light is, is the light that matters. Mm -hmm. There's a um, set of structures of, on top of the optic, uh, the place the optic nerves cross behind the eyes is called the optic chi or chiasm, the X, mm -hmm. Greek letter chi. And the optic chiasm has a nucleus, a little structure on top of it. It sits right on top of the X called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And mm -hmm. the SCN, its job is to watch the temperature of light hitting your retina mm -hmm. and say, oh, it's this time of day. And the SCN then synchronizes all of the other clocks in the brain, the body in a cascade. So you don't need the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, to be pinged every morning to stay roughly in shape with time. But you do need it sometimes or you will slide past the Earth's daylight cycle and weird things happen then. So that light, the color of uh, sunshine that's in the air, even through clouds, first thing in the morning is only there for the first hour or so. And then the sun's higher in the sky and you get more of that color reflected back into space. So I recommend people picking a time they can get up seven days a week. That's the same roughly. And that time should be no later than one hour after sunrise. So of course today's daylight savings time. We just you know, pulled back an hour. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, I'm not sure where you are, but where I am, sunrise is about 6.15 in the morning, which mm -hmm. means I would recommend everyone get up by 7 a.m. Absolute latest this time of year, seven days a week. And, you know, I have parents being like, well, my kid sits up till three in the morning and playing video games. Like, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Get them up at 6.30 every single day. And after a few days, the evening takes care of itself. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it really does. Yeah. Um, and then the third rule, exercise in the morning before you eat sometimes. We're built to like leave the, the, the cave and the jungle and hunt for jungle chickens and like, you know, expend energy before we receive it. We're built that way. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it doesn't have to be a big workout. You're a big bodybuilder. You probably want to, you know, work out fed instead of fasted. But definitely do some stretching. Take the dog for a walk. Do some sun salutations. Just get your heart rate moving a little bit in those first few hours. So when you put all these rules together, what it looks like is you're not eating first thing in the morning, you're riding your cortisol and you're exercising. Not eating late at night, you're letting your insulin clear. In the middle of the day, you're eating a couple meals and you're not snacking. You don't want to keep your insulin pushed up the way that we thought in the 70s, we had to have starch every three hours mm -hmm. um, or 80s. It's, it's really a big deal. It's a problem for most Westerners. That's why we are the fattest country pretty much out there for a modern country, have the most diabetes, the most cancer, the most Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. You know, They don't have Alzheimer's in Japan, pretty much. They have another form of dementia called uh, vascular dementia. Mm -hmm. because they have problems with too much sodium and salt and vascular pressure stuff in their diet. Mm -hmm. But there's almost no Alzheimer's relative to the population in Japan because it's driven by the type of starches and other things that are problematic. In this country, we have an epidemic of the Alzheimer's-style dementias, i.e. the type 3 diabetes, um, which, again, is tractable. There's some good work by Dale... Uh, Bredesen. Yeah, um, who the Recode program, mm -hmm. um, he, he, uh, I used to teach this stuff when I taught gerontology at UCLA. 
it's about 37 factors in the brain, sorry, in the, in the body, metabolic factors, that if a handful of them seem to get out of whack, things like hormones, C-reactive protein, oxidation things, you know, methionine, glutathione imbalance. When a handful of these things get, get out of whack, it looks like the brain flips over into a mode where it's heavily immune, uh, uh, sort of like angry, and it's ready to fight anything in the, in the brain. Because mm -hmm. under these stressful conditions, high starch and stressful conditions, we evolved like in Papua New Guinea, um, they all eat starch. The historical Papua New Guineans all eat tubers, you know, potatoes basically as their main source of fuel. And they all have APOE, APOE, APOE4-4 status, meaning they're easily oxidizing fats if they have any starch. So if you were a Western in the US, you had APOE4-4 eating this much starch, you get diabetes and or atherosclerosis and or Alzheimer's, period. Mm -hmm. You just oxidize the tissue. But nobody in Papua New Guinea has this problem, the traditional diet people, because they are exposed to microbially dirty environments. Mm -hmm. The jungles are dangerous to the brain. So all these microbes get in, and the amyloid is an immune molecule, and it fights, out, it fights the, uh, the microbes and keeps them healthy. So in Papua New Guinea, jungle people will live longer than Americans will with a high-starch diet, dramatically longer, because they're actually using the amyloid as an, as an innate immune function. And um, Dr. Brzezden found that essentially, he, he theorized that essentially amyloid's precursor, APP, amyloid precursor protein, will cleave in a couple different directions of amyloid. And one of those amyloids makes the brain synaptoblastic. It builds more synapses, like you have osteoblasts in your tissue that build more bone density. Mm -hmm. You have osteoclasts that consume it. This is dynamic regulatory tissue in the bones. Same thing for synaptic density. So it looks like Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, metabolic di damage, et cetera, produces this long, slow metabolic adjustment trying to handle stress, oxidation, other dangerous things. And the brain strips out synapses because of it. We lose you know, tissue, we lose memories. And in our 40s and 50s and 60s, usually much later, we actually have significant problems. Now, evolutionarily, it doesn't matter. It's happening in our 60s, who cares? According to the brain, there's not a caretaker role in the 60s and 70s. It doesn't matter nearly as much. But for quality of life as a modern human, it matters a big deal. So literally most people are pre-diabetic in the US. Even if you're skinny, if you're eating sugar, if you're eating carbs three, four times a day, if you mm -hmm. cannot go a full day without eating, without feeling clear, without feeling rested, if you, if you cannot deal without food, you have a problem with your insulin, basically. Mm -hmm. And many people, many people in the US will just eat every three hours for decades and just gradually put on more and more adipose, gradually oxidized tissue, never spend any time throughout the day or even year cleaning up all the crappy tissue that's been building up inefficiently, all the oxidized stuff, because you're never going into an autophagy state. You're never letting things clear. So all religions, all spiritual practices have fasting built into them, pretty much. There's a reason for that. You know, most religions, the rules they give you are because the world they lived in, if you didn't follow the rules, you died. Like all the rules for food preparation in Judaism, we're about keeping the, the kitchens from having cross-contaminants so you didn't get sick. You know, and fasting, be it Ramadan or be it Lent, mm -hmm. it's, there's a reason for it. It helps your body be healthier, dramatically healthier. Mm -hmm. So we have the machinery to fast as well as we have the machinery to eat. If you haven't fasted, you might be leaving one whole set of tools off your, um, off your plate that will, no pun intended here, that will really actually make a huge difference in your performance. I mean, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm 97 years old. Look at me, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think uh, when I think about 
you know, who's listening to this show, I, I think about people back home in my small town community in the Midwest, and then people that are my medical peers here on the East Coast. And I think when they hear about uh, ketones or the, key, the, the ketone uh, diet or, or ketogenic diet, um, you know, they're thinking about just eating fat and that it's sort of this, this fad diet where you're eating sort of fried balls of, yeah. of Philadelphia cheese and bacon every day. And, uh, you know, and, and so they have their medical questions about that. Um, people in the Midwest maybe haven't heard about it so much, or, or again, they think it's some fad diet, but then also uh, thinking about fasting and uh, intermittent fasting also sort of seeing, seeming like it's this this fad diet and and you know in the hospital setting when we see people uh, who aren't eating or who have ketones in their urine you know we're worried about things like diabetic ketoacidosis right. and like right. a type 1 diabetic where really the the risk that's posed that's posed to them is not from their ketones being elevated but rather from hypoglycemia um, exactly. in in yeah. somebody with type 1 diabetes um, you know which you can die from from low blood sugar but in a normal human being without type 1 diabetes or somebody who has signs of metabolic disease, things like diabetes, hypertension, or, or cholesterol issues, um, uh, you know, there, there, there are likely a lot of benefits to things like ketones. And there's different ways to, to arrive at getting into that ketotic state, which you sort of started to mention. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about sort of a, a, a lay audience, um, uh, just breaking this down a little bit more, you know, how do you, how do you think, you know, a lay audience can, can begin to sort of understand uh, uh, ketones as a, um, as an energy source for the brain um, and how to approach this, you know, in a, in a healthy and sustainable way. Sure. So um, you are, a, you know, 30 to 40 year old guy, relative good shape. You're carrying around 125 to 150,000 calories in fat. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're really in shape. I can't tell. Maybe it's only 100,000 calories you're carrying mm -hmm. around in fat. Mm -hmm. um, we were built to go extended periods of time without food. We, mm -hmm. we did not have refrigerators. We didn't have you know, food that we could get. We had to hunt it. We had to carry it around. We, we starved. We, fat, we feasted. We famined. Um, ketoacidosis high amounts of ketones because your body's freaking out and dumping all of your uh, adipose into fuel, basically, is an extremely high level of ketones. And you're right, maybe not that dangerous. In fact, ketones uh, nutritionally enhance ketosis, creating ketones yourself out of your fat is profoundly good. Anti-cancer, anti-aging, it, it causes muscle. Oddly enough, ketones cause muscle growth synthesis. They actually mm -hmm. turn on mTOR in the muscles you know, ketones uh, prevent mTOR, which is a, a proliferation uh, signal. It's a, it's, a, it's a fuel sensor based on the brain. mTOR senses protein or in the body. mTOR senses protein, insulin senses glucose or mm -hmm. sugar, basically. So if you eat protein, mTOR goes up. If you eat uh, carbohydrates, you get insulin responses. These things will go back and forth to create more protein-based metabolism or sugar-based metabolism, if you will. Um, you literally can simply pull back a little bit on your eating window and drop the carbohydrates. People think of keto diets as these fat heavy diets and they can be, but they don't have to be. I mean, and in fact, they shouldn't be if you're doing it for weight loss. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it for like athletic performance, then yeah, if you're like a serious high level cyclist or a weightlifter, you should be eating a lot of fat because you need the damn fuel. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody who's like 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds overweight, your keto diet should not be a fat heavy diet. It should be a moderate protein, high leafy greens diet. 
because you're carrying around plenty of fat. You, you're, you're walking around with keto stores. You don't need to supplement dietary fat if you've got plenty of excess fat. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the lipo, um, what's it called? You burn your, lip, your, your lipids, I forget. You, 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 you release your- Thank you, lipolysis. You, you release your um, stored adipose into triglycerides mm -hmm. and or you take dietary fat to triglycerides, i.e. fats in solution in the bloodstream. And triglycerides are three uh, uh, essentially fat molecules, mm -hmm. fatty acids with a glycerol, a little glycerin backbone. And the body will take triglycerides out of fat and or out of the diet and it will cleave the backbone off of it. And I have three free fatty acids floating around the bloodstream. And these guys can be burned as fuel, which is awesome. The body, the brain can now make fuel out of your stored fuel, woohoo, or your body can. Um, however, the brain really prefers glucose. And while you can burn ketones, it doesn't like to do so very well. So the body's really cool. It takes that triglyceride and it takes three of those glycerol backbones and turns it into glucose. The liver gluconeogenesis takes fat, turns it into glucose or protein if you're eating it and turns it into glucose. Just enough, not, not very much, but enough to provide the brain with a sort of uninterrupted, very, very low key stream of glucose. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a steady stream of blood glucose to your brain sufficient to provide no, you know, no hypoglycemia. Once you've adapted, keto adapted, and there's a difference between producing ketones through nutritional means, either through eating lots of fat and not much carb or lots of protein and much carb, you'll eventually produce good ketones out of the food and or nutritional keto, uh, sorry, um, fasting ketosis essentially where you get better at producing them. So in the absence of food, you're pumping them out all the time from your fat stores. Mm -hmm. um, the body's really good at this and it will, partition some of this fuel into the liver and then into, up into the brain as glucose to make sure that you don't have any hypoglycemia. But that process of getting better at burning the triglycerides being dumped out of adipose, turning some of those into glucose for the brain, that whole liver sort of pathway up into the brain, that takes time. It's enzymatic. If you've been eating sugar every day, pizzas and ice cream every day, and then you suddenly stop and you're eating bacon and butter all the time, your body's like, wait, what? I have no idea how to do this. And it takes weeks to drop your dependence on insulin, to bring up your ability to metabolize fats better. It can take weeks for people, especially if you're overweight, especially if you've been keeping blood sugar up, you know, exogenously putting things in your body. Mm -hmm. So I really do think the best way to handle ketones is endogenous production. I think keto diets are really useful, but I don't think that you should be, you, you, you can eat lots of fat, um, Dr. Jason Fung basically suggests that a, a pure fat diet would work well, but that's only for like that type of population that's trying to lose weight. It's adipose driven, it's health driven in terms of uh, you know, dropping fat, i.e. people that are diabetic, people with kidney disease, you wanna lose fat, you wanna lose body weight. Um, but for you, like you probably don't need to carve off 10 pounds of body fat. And maybe your, your, you know, your partner would like that or something, but like you don't care about it probably. But if it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now and you get a little cancer or something, well, okay, now you want to really tap into autophagy. Or maybe you want to do it off and on, fast once a week between now and the time you hit 60 so that you have a nice, clean, sharp processing and never actually mm -hmm. develop those oxidative states in your brain. Mm -hmm. So the point is that you can start doing this stuff really easily. Just don't eat. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. Or eat things that are no carbs. Uh, the average person will get into ketosis pretty well, you know, produce ketones pretty well within three days eating no more than 50 total grams of carbohydrates a day. And if you break that into two meals, so you aren't, aren't snacking, 25 grams max carbs, um, 20 net, 25 max, uh, uh, total in a meal, 
two meals a day, you'll be in ketosis in a few days. You'll be make, pumping out ketones. If you've been poor metabolically, you won't be burning those ketones. You're just going to pee them all out mostly and breathe them out. Acetone and BOHB in your, in your urine and things, in your blood, you'll just pee all those things out. But after another week of that, you'll start burning them. So if you start measuring like, like blood, blood ketone, what you'll see is it go up, up and up and up and up and up. And after a couple of weeks, it goes down. Not because you're not making less, but because you have less of a reservoir in your blood because you're burning it faster. So you have to kind of think about your current nutritional status. I mean, and, and metabolic health, because if you're carrying around a little extra body fat and you eat a carbohydrate rich diet or you know, a sugar rich diet, um, you're probably carrying around in gluca glycogen um, for you, you and I, you know, relatively uh, medium to big size guys, 400, 500 grams of carbohydrates, roughly, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's a fair amount. I mean, we don't usually eat that per day, even in a carbohydrate rich world. So now you have to think about, oh, wait, I'm carrying around about 50 grams, maybe 100 grams of my liver. If I'm really good at, you know, fill my liver up with glycogen. If I'm really muscular, maybe another three to 400, maybe 450 in all my muscles, you know, cool. But now you have to think about ways to deplete that system to kick yourself up into burning the other fuel source. So you can almost kind of go, oh, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to work out for half an hour. It's about 300 calories in my intense workout. Ooh, I've just actually brought my glycogen down dramatically. I'm going to fast for a little bit, have some fat, have some protein. I'm guessing my body's not going to be able to grab the re residual glucose and starch everywhere. It's going to start trying to burn fat. And then I have tools I use like this. I'll show you. This is my favorite tool these days. It's hmm. called a Biosense. It's a breath acetone meter. So I can check my, my ketone levels mm -hmm. every two hours. Um, and, and finger sticks aren't all that accurate because the system oscillates. You have to mm -hmm. finger stick every two to three hours to get valid readings, mm -hmm. especially if you have a diabetic or blood sugar issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge fan of using breath acetone, which is not directly measuring BOHB, uh, um, uh, butyrate in the blood, not measuring mm -hmm. ketone in the blood, but it's a waste product in some ways. It's being uh, exhaled, but it's highly correlated with um, producing blood ketones. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of figure out, well, for you, what is ketosis? You know, can you have 100 grams of carbohydrates or not? Most people can't. Some people can. Can you have 50? Can you have 20? How often can you eat? Does too much protein kill your, uh, your ketone production? Because it will for some people. Some people right, get up right. above, you know, like I've been doing uh, one meal a day for a while and I discovered that if I ate more than about 2,000 calories in that one meal, even if it was like a rotisserie chicken, an avocado, you know, like mostly fat and protein, I would still blunt my acetone production over the next 24 hours if I exceeded the amount of protein by, mm -hmm. you know, if I was 150 grams of protein above that, I was suddenly, my body's like, oh, there's plenty of protein. Let's make some of that into, into sugar, right. essentially. So while there are rules I can give people, and I do coach people on how to do this stuff and take control of the, of the insulin sensitivity, basically, the best way to do it is to get some data. Get a glucose ketone monitor stuck to the back of your arm. Your doctor will watch your prescription for one these days, no problem. Or get a breath ketone meter or get a finger stick device, a um, Keto Mojo or the Foracare 6. I have one of those. I'm using Foracare 6 is great. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't use it because I'm diabetic. I use it because I'm concerned about my brain health, my long-term aging. I, I wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm 50. I, I was joking. I'm, I'm actually not 97. I turned 50 in about a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, by the time I hit 50, I want abs. So for the past uh, seven and a half weeks, I've been doing this insulin reset protocol, this insulin sensitivity reset protocol, where I, I stack fasts, 22, 44, and 66-hour 66, 66 fasts. I just wow. cycle them. 
and I go back and forth and then I refeed with high carbs and I drop the carbs and I watch how my body's, you know, handling it. And I sort of walk that edge of keeping myself both maximally fat burning, but also then shutting it down. And the meters I have don't go above, uh, I get uh, basically 40 um, parts per million breath acetone equates to about three and a half or four millimolars for, for blood ketones. Yeah. The, me the breath meter stops there. Um, when I was first doing this, I was a little concerned because I was easily pegging the meter. I was easily above its maximum reference range frequently. And I pulled out the Foracare device to make sure that I was below eight um, millimoles uh, for, for ketones because that's about where ketoacidosis can kick in, right? So I wasn't concerned because I know that high ketones isn't really a big deal. But if I was like a you know, diabetic doctor, oh my gosh, your ketones are so high. I'd be very concerned about that kind of thing, kidney disease happening, whatever else. But if you know your own levels, you know, you know your own numbers, you know if you're able to handle things and you track this stuff, I mean, what's the, the business guy Drucker say, you know, what is measured is managed. Mm -hmm. You have the ability to manage your blood pressure, your lipids, your oxidative stress, your C-reactive protein, your beta brain waves, your alpha, your speed of processing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the great democratization of science and healthcare is continuing and you have the kind of decision criteria, education and access information that doctors didn't have in the 50s. So I feel this is just another place where you should be taking control of it. And gosh, fasting and time restricted feeding and working out appropriately to cause autophagy, that doesn't cost anything. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, I, as a biohacker, as a performance coach, my first port of call is fix the stuff you're doing every day. Someone's like, hey, do I need some blue blocker glasses? Not really, but you probably shouldn't eat at night. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, okay. You know, like pick the big things you're doing every day. I mean, you're always right. eating, theoretically, you're always sleeping. You know, those are the things that really make big impacts. Small incremental changes, modifiable behaviors um, will take the individual and like our populations up in health and performance over time. Simple. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, for somebody listening to this who hasn't uh, thought very much about uh, their diet and their approach to uh, staving off cognitive decline with aging, they, they think about diets. We talk about diets as if they're all sort of uh, you know, comparing apples to apples, like there's a Mediterranean diet, and then there's a ketogenic diet. And uh, there's, there's different components to different diets. So really, you should almost call them lifestyles, because it's one component is uh, what you're eating. Another component is when you're eating. Mm -hmm. Another component would maybe be like what um, uh, micro or macronutrient sort of balance you're eating. So, uh, you know, talking about something like a Mediterranean diet, it's talking mostly about what you're eating um, and maybe some of the evidence about, um, you know, the benefits of a Mediterranean diet, even though it's, it's really a poorly defined diet. Uh, but, but it does in, in general, it, it's, uh, it has a lot of you know, leafy greens or vegetables and, and things like that, which are maybe, you know, you're getting some benefit from the, from the micronutrients. Um, and definitely from a macronutrient perspective, there's less simple uh, refined carbohydrates in, in a diet like a Mediterranean diet, but that doesn't mean that it's a perfect diet. And an important issue about that diet is that it does not talk about when you eat. Um, right. And, you know, so uh, similarly- and that matters. I mean, there, there is something about Mediterranean lifestyle where they right. do eat in a certain way or the French paradox. Mm -hmm. The French in the 70s and 80s smoked all, you know, chain smoke like it was their country pastime. Mm -hmm. um, their diets are full of carbohydrates and saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And yet they have a heart disease risk that is among the lowest of any developed nation. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is they have two hour lunches and go for a walk. Right. 
I really do think that's about as simple. And you know, I, I've, I've traveled a lot in Europe and if you have dinner with some Europeans, you're not like sitting down at 5 p.m. and you're done at six. You're like, oh, hey, come on over. Let's, oh, it's 8 p.m. The sun's still up. We're sitting there until 11 p.m. You're chatting, food's mm -hmm. eating slowly. I really do think that makes a difference. I mean, there's a lot of good research showing you can hack this same thing. You can eat lunch and go for a walk and the, the postprandial, the, the insulin response after you eat is dramatically reduced if you just go for a walk after you eat. Mm -hmm. And the French, you know, Parisians certainly would, would walk, would, would have their little cafes, would, you know, mm -hmm. sort of offset the potential problems. Of course, there may be something there about the glyphosate, you know, in our wheat as well mm -hmm. in, in the Western world, but... Um, they're also probably not waking up and having a bowl of cereal and a glass of orange juice, you know, right, right when they wake up as well. That's right. They're having a coffee, you know, right. and then like a couple hours later, they're having a croissant and they walk down to the place to see their friend with a paper. You know, they're not like shoving Captain Crunch in their face. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I think there was a lot of really interesting conversation about diet and, and its impacts on brain health. One thing that I really wanted for us to talk about was about cognitive performance and about the work that you're doing at the Peak Brain Institute. Um, so you touched in the beginning on some of the different domains of cognition. Um, and I would really appreciate if you could kind of reorient uh, me and the listeners to, uh, you know, what sort of different domains you consider as part of cognition and, and your approach to those yeah. different domains. Great question. Um, you know, again, as a cognitive neuroscientist, I'm a little bit of a reductionist. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I really am. I, I have a hard time understanding things like consciousness. In fact, the more I get into the brain, the less I believe in the mind. Uh, I sort of, it's funny, as I get more and more heavily into the neuroscience, I sort of come, come to a Buddhist perspective that the self isn't really there, that we have an illusion that stitches us together, you know, over many days. And we kind of have this sense of self that is not all that interesting. But the individual resources, while historically somewhat hard to define these days, not so much. So I, I think about the core resources that are sort of one level below our experience. I mean, our experience is very subtle and I'm not a psychologist. I have a, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a psych or a cognitive neuroscience degree, but it, I'm really focused on the machinery. And so I think about, I, I really focus on the, the underpinnings, the resource underpinnings of human resources that are measurable, like executive function or attention control has several things built into it, like orienting to, to space. Um, being vigilant to things changing, resolving response conflict, like having to step out into the street when the car comes around and, the, and, the, and it says walk at the same time. Um, speed of processing, as I mentioned earlier, it's really tied to memory access and how we can pull things into your mind. Working memory, can you hold things in your mind? How fast can you think? Can you, can you come up with new ideas? Um, and then, you know, for, for individuals, I often look at their brains and what I'm seeing are the unusual things that stick up and because I do population level analysis, I don't know for any one person if this thing's in the way, but I can say, oh, hey, look, here's a resource on attention, stress, sleep, mood, that for some people, this pattern of the way it's acting might get in the way. What do you think? Oh, that's relevant? Well, then great. So again, it's very bespoke. It's very individualized. And so I might have somebody who's you know, a, a self-stimming, screaming, no eye contact, autistic kid having three seizures you know, every five minutes. Or I might have a CEO who's like a little anxious and on edge when they get home at night, you know, and they want to work on different things. But the process of going after your resources is somewhat the same. Uh, we do something called brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG. And so uh, we put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel. Um, you sit still for about 10 minutes. We measure your brain at rest, eyes open, eyes closed. We also measure your executive function, your performance on an attention test. 
And those three sets of baselines are compared to a database of people your age. And we end up with somewhat arbitrary, you know, population level means. The goal here isn't to say, why aren't you average? Let's make you average. The goal is to say, oh, hey, look, here's some ways that you're unusual. For some people, those things are relevant. Let's talk about them and try to figure out if you care about those things. So the brain is, is, is mysterious. And I don't necessarily know what a particular brain pattern or resource means for you, but I can sort of say, hey, look, this thing means this for many people and provide the educational sort of, you know, close that gap and then you end up making the meaning. So people are often a little surprised at what I can see in a brain map um, when I look and anything that shows up obviously is usually very, very tractable, meaning just change it if you want to. And those include things like for all, pretty much all forms of ADHD show up in the brain reliably, the brain mapping, um, most forms of anxiety, most forms of like sleep issues. Um, you might see evidence of slowed brain waves that could be from concussions or mold or Lyme or chemotherapy. You don't know why it's there, but you can tell there's some issue in the brain being sluggish metabolically. Um, and so you can give people some perspective on the core resources that might be pinching their cognitive resources. And then correlate that with the attention performance and you can help people understand the machinery they're carrying around for impulsivity or trauma or OC, you know, perseverative stuff for selection attention, attention, falling asleep, staying asleep. You know, these are all things all brains do every day, theoretically. So if you can measure the core resources about the stuff you care about, you can then use neurofeedback to lean on those resources and change them pretty rapidly, as I was saying earlier. And so, you know, some of these different components being focus, attention, creativity, uh, mood, mm -hmm. uh, hyperactivity, rumination, impulsivity. Uh, so the, the, the approach that you take is by quantitative, quantitative EEG and by, you know, kind of seeing where people are abnormal in those realms. And then uh, you have sort of different prescribed uh, approaches for each of those. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, let me know if there's a specific cognitive or mental, you know, thing you'd care about. I'll give you an example that's specific to that. But mm. the easiest one is probably ADHD because I see so much of it. It's so mm. common. It's also not a, a disorder, right? It's just a natural brain thing uh, tuned one direction. So in the case of ADHD, um, in kids below 18 years old, the data is 94% accurate for spotting ADHD in the absence of a sleep issue, at least. Um, and what you see is someone's theta brain waves are very high with their eyes open usually beta brain waves are also low. So like the theta beta ratio, the slow brain waves are up, the fast brain waves are down in the average person with ADHD. And again, in kids who are um, below 18, you can measure on the top of the head with one electrode, the vertex, and it's 94% specific for blindly sorting kids into buckets of ADHD and non-ADHD. Um, the inattentive features, which is alpha being stuck in neutral, ADD, that's eyes open alpha waves. And that marker, if you will, you know, if I saw lots of eyes open alpha for you, um, about 80% accurate. You know, I wouldn't know if it's true or not, but I might guess about it. I would also, of course, measure your attention. So I would see the performance go, oh, oh these two things line up. You want to probably work on your attention. So let's say you had some impulsivity. You don't, obviously. But if you did, my guess is your theta would be high. And probably in the part of this, the brain on the right-hand side involved with supervisory attention. There's a circuit that stitches together the whole brain's attention system on the right, about there. And if I stuck a wire there and a couple of ear clips on your head and then measured your theta and measured your beta on its own moment to moment, every so often your theta would dip and your beta would climb when you 
focused or felt focused or resource shifted just on its own. And so what we would do is we'd have you sit and watch a computer screen and put a Pac-Man on it or a spaceship or a dragon flying across a lake or something silly. And whenever your brain happened on its own to move in the right direction for half a second, we go, yeah, good job, brain, and make the game run better. So the Pac-Man starts to move and eat dots and the music gets louder. Mm-hmm. The next moment your brain moves in the wrong direction, the theta surges, the beta dips, and the Pac-Man slows down and stalls. So the car you know, hits the edge of the, the track or the dragon starts to miss her targets. And you're like, your brain's like, hey, I, I was watching that information. Why did it go away? And the brain happens to move back in a couple of seconds and the software goes, oh, good job. Mm-hmm. So obviously as, as, a, as a brain professional, you're already uh, sort of picking up that this is operant conditioning. You know, mm-hmm. think Skinner's pigeons, not Pavlov's dog. I've not made anyone drool, I promise, with my ring of bell. Um, we're taking oh, things feedback. that already exist. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you're, already, you're already making alpha, beta. You already have certain speeds of brainwaves, amount of brainwaves. We're taking that, we're shaping it. We're applauding the trends that already exist. And so if I applaud your theta dropping for 10, 15 minutes as it drops here and there, your brain goes, well, hey, that was pretty cool. I got some input. I, I kind of like input. So tomorrow your brain reaches for that state and it drops its theta, re- lifts its beta. And you're like, ooh, I kind of focus. That was cool. Or maybe ask your kid to take the trash out and he does being asked the first time. And you're like, that was weird, you know, because mm-hmm. the organizational stuff starts to shift. So neurofeedback becomes this, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a metaphor. It very much is iterative personal training. Mm-hmm. You know, where you come up with some goals off of a fitness assessment, do some workouts, see how they land and reassess. So, you know, the, the end point for success is sort of open-ended. I mean, yeah, you got some autism, some trauma, there's obvious goals, some seizures, obvious goals. But I have a lot of people that start off with a mix of attention, anxiety, and ADHD, uh, sorry, attention, anxiety, and sleep issues. And, you know, six, eight weeks in, those things are gone. And they're working on like deep creativity and laser-like focus and being a better listener to their wife or whatever else. You can really start to work on second level resources once the basics, stress, sleep, and attention, which I do think all brains have that, that cluster of resources that need to be worked out. Um, so it ends up becoming simply, do you want to work on your theta waves? Are you distractible? Or maybe those cingulates, maybe you got a little bit beta back there and you tend to be threat sensitive. Mm-hmm. Or the front, maybe you're obsessive. Mm-hmm. Now, again, here's the good thing about neurofeedback. Let's say you're obsessive. The anterior cingulate gets really stuck in beta, songs playing in your head, you bite your nails, wash your hands, whatever it is. Perseverative, the mind gets stuck on things. That's a superpower. It's also kryptonite. I mean, it's stuck, so that's why it's kryptonite. But it's really a superpower. I wouldn't know looking at your anterior cingulate if you had OCD features or if you were just that guy who's hyper-focused when he wants to be. But if you're like, oh, yeah, that kind of gets in the way sometimes, I would say, great, let's train that down a touch and clench it. And after you train it down, whenever you want to be obsessive or hyper-focused, you just reach for it and it's there. Whenever you don't want to be, you put it down again. So we don't rob the ADHD person, the person that's hyper-focused, the person that's, you know, a little unusual. The anxiety person often has a very fast brain that can think incredibly well when they aren't overwhelmed. You, you, you sort of retain access to these resources and then tune them just like you might work out your you know, physical body and then feel like you're using it better later on. Mm-hmm. So we have this iterative process of exercising the waves. About three to five sessions in, you start feeling it. About 20 sessions in, we map the brain again. And we typically do a couple rounds of that 20 sessions, maybe two or three of those rounds. ADHD and anxiety take about two rounds. Um, concussions take three to four. You know, peak performance, people often continue. Autism, they continue because you can make change just gradually, slowly, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. But 
we generally re-regulate a lot of the really acute stuff. I mean, I work with veterans uh, with PTSD. I get free services away and 20 sessions and they're like, hey doc, do I have to keep coming? I feel great. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you know, as long as you feel fine, it's fine. And they aren't done from my perspective, but they're so much better than they used to be. And they're taking mm -hmm. two buses to my office and they're, you know, it's fine. But what I want people to take away from this is it doesn't matter what particular thing you might want to work on. The brain is a tractable set of resources, just like your abs, your pecs, your, your lower back. If these things are not operating the way you don't want them to, you actually can change them. Just like you can get stronger shoulders or, you mm -hmm. know, sleep better because you worked out differently. You can go after the core resource up here really reliably for the things that brains do commonly. That's the mm -hmm. basic resource stuff. Mm -hmm. So. So what I heard you mention is, you know, you do the brain mapping and then you do this neurofeedback approach uh, that sounds like a, a component of it is the video games to uh, sort of, you know, retrain uh, your, your brain in areas of the brain perhaps that are weak or that are overactive. Um, but uh, I've also seen that, that you have part of the approach being mindfulness meditation. And I'm curious what, uh, what sort of deficiency that's going after or, or what role you see it playing. Yeah, so I sort of view the combination of neurofeedback and mindfulness uh, to be very um, multiplicative in some ways. Uh, I used to run a, uh, the brain side of an addiction center that did a lot of work around moderation, a lot of work around mindfulness. And what I saw, both in addiction clients and then just regular brain clients I saw, I saw that people that did both neurofeedback and mindfulness had accelerated changes compared to those that did either. I mean, neurofeedback is very rapid anyways. But when they added mindfulness to it, it like the effects people were getting were taking off. They were, they were just dramatic. I mean, I have, this still happens to this day. I have clients, yesterday someone called me. He's been meditating for six months. He's been in neurofeedback for a year. He's just started experiencing something called the jhanas, these absorptive experiences, you know, feeling light suffuse you and warmth cover your body. These are things that happen 10, 20 years into meditation of classic meditators. I'm getting CEOs to do it routinely six months in because their meditation skills are like, more powerful than they realize. And they're, hey, doc, I'm, I'm, this is weird. What's happening here? Oh, actually, interesting. Like, you're very absorbed. Cool. Um, so I view these two things kind of like the neurofeedback is the strength and conditioning coach in the gym, making me bang out the rep and build the resource. And mindfulness is the coach in the field, helping you lift your shoulder more or your elbow or not release weirdly. It's a voluntary set of experiences, mindfulness. Mm. It's, it's pure mind but it helps shape the brain. I mean, I mentioned the uh, insula is built up um, or at least you're spared the loss with age, but also when you meditate, the cingulates change their activity. So the anterior cingulate, when you first are meditating, has a hot spot right in the top middle of it, which is like a self-centered kind of perspective. What am I focusing on? What am I thinking about? And when you meditate over the years, the activation goes from the top side to the underside of the cingulate, which can't experience self. So you literally move from a self-centered awareness of your mind mm -hmm. into a measurably self-less measurement of your mind with, you know, decades of meditation. Mm -hmm. So it does change, shapes the individual. Um, but you can do a lot of that simply with whatever tool you feel like. I mean, I have clients that don't meditate. I have clients that don't fast. I have clients that don't do any nootropics. I have clients that do all of those things. And I'm not so concerned about which tools you take to take control of your performance as long as you have some goals and you want to take control of your performance. And, you know, incidental things happen even if you don't want to take control of a specific symptom. I joke that if you walk into Equinox, you know, all the staff has their abs hanging out. 
But at Peak Brain, everyone has like kindness and good listening skills hanging out because I have all these 20 and 30 something, you know, year old staff that are like 80 year old Tibetan monk vibes, like super low, low key, very kind because they start training their brains within the off hours. And after a few months, they're like the best possible, you know, even keel, resilient, well-rested, attentive individuals. Hmm. So, and most of them don't have anything wrong. Like they don't have like big problems, but since they have access to the gear, they hang out, they ask me for protocols, we train them and they all get uh, optimized before they go to grad school, basically, so. Yeah, wow. Well, it's all really fascinating. And I think uh, both an approach from, uh, you know, a cognition in the um, sphere of sort of cognitive decline and aging, as well as just for people who are maybe not quite in that uh, stage of life and uh, that want to work more on their attention or on their uh, hyperactivity or, or their mood. Um, seems like there's, you know, a lot of different approaches that people can take. Um, and I, I appreciate your exploration of all of that. Thanks, so, Robert. yeah. So, uh, so just to finish off here, uh, for people that are more interested in you and your work, uh, where could I send them? to learn more about you. Yeah, so we have um, Peak Brain LA or peakbraininstitute.com, same website um, for the main uh, brain training centers. Um, I'm at Andrew Hill PhD everywhere on socials. I think I'm Andrew Hill PhD on you know, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Instagram, plus my website's andrewhillphd.com. Um, and you know, Peak Brain's our main website uh, for brain training, but we have offices for Peak Brain in St. Louis. We have one in LA, one in Orange County, one in London. Uh, new and opening up in Copenhagen shortly. And then we have um, this point, you know, in a peri-pandemic world, 75% uh, of our clients train from home. Wow. Even 2019, it was 55%. So we we're already doing a lot of virtual remote support. We give you a, a private chat, basically, and, and work with you live uh, when you're doing training and teach how to do it and then provide support. But these days, um, you don't have to come into a center. You could say, hey, peak brain, send me stuff. I want to get my brain shored up you or your family and we do it all virtually so um it may be worth knowing that people that are listening to your podcast get a discount so if you come into one of the centers the brain map is cut in half our brain map pricing is pretty good anyway it's only 500 bucks list and we can do free repeats which no one does for mm -hmm. like ongoing education when they sell when they tell us they come from your podcast we'll cut that in half so it's 249 for a brain map one-time fee and they have free access to the centers thereafter or they can have the same discount off of a training program uh, and those are a few grand, but it's a pretty competitive price wise because we're not therapists. We don't have to charge therapy rates. Mm -hmm. So we end up doing you know, personal trainer kind of stuff. But um, Peak Brain LA is the main website. Please come check us out. Please ask me on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. Give me your brain questions. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting all kinds of content out there and I'm starting to develop articles. And as I move more you know, out of just pure neurofeedback into more of the the peak performance coaching for a community. I, I sort of do a lot of this individually. I have a private coaching roster that are, you know, CEOs and athletes and things, but I'm trying to make this content more accessible to everyone. And so like the, the discussion we just had about fasting, I mean, I have about 15 things I would want to educate an individual around and we covered a bunch of them, but I have this conversation with my clients again and again and again, as, as you might expect. So mm -hmm. people out there, please let me know what you want to know. And I'll make sure that I, coalesce that particular set of biohacking in ways you guys can go and dig into without having to just listen to me, you know, chat some morning. So, yeah. All right. Well, Andrew Hill, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. This is uh, clearly an area of, of, of interest for me and, uh, and I look forward to seeing the things that you're up to. 
Hey listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.